0: to imagine with me that you are playing football in a stadium with a retractable roof, okay? So you're in a football stadium, whether you're in this, I don't know if you're in the stands in your imagination, or you're on the field, or you're coaching, or you're selling popcorn and peanuts, wherever you are in this, um, imagine that you're in a stadium in one of those big football stadiums with retractable roofs. Now, without anyone notices, the retractable roof closes, and you and everyone else in the stadium continues going about your business, continues playing football or watching from the stands or coaching the team. And you have forgotten um, over the course of time that the roof was ever open. Right? The roof closes. You've forgotten that the roof was ever open. And now here we are in the stadium and the roof, we can't open the roof. Let's say that the roof is actually jammed shut. So as you play football or you watch the game or do whatever it is that you're doing within the stadium, you forget that the roof was ever open. You forget that there was ever um, a sun or a moon or stars. You forget there was ever an outside world. The um, you know, whole world, you know, there's the sky, all these things. You forget that it all exists. You have this sense about you that the roof was once opened, but now you don't know what it's like for it to have been open, And you don't know how to open it. Now, in a way, this is what it feels like to live in the age that we're in. Um, We live in an age that scholars call the secular age, where as a culture, for the most part, we live our lives without reference to God. We live our lives in the stadium with the roof closed without reference to the sky being above. Whereas 500 years ago, it was implausible to think that the stadium roof could ever shut. Now, it's just as implausible to think that the stadium roof could ever open. And so with the closed stadium, with this imminent frame, as Charles Taylor puts it, we construct a life for ourselves in an entire, entirely secular way. So Flannery O'Connor, who's a great author and the 20th century um, Catholic writer, she wrote this way, she put it this way. She said, I don't think you should write something as long as a novel around anything that is not of the gravest concern to you and everybody else. And for me, this is always the conflict between an attraction for the holy and a disbelief in it that we breathe in with the air of our times. It's hard to believe always, but more so in the world we now live. There are some of us who have to pay for our faith every step of the way and who have to work out dramatically what it would be like without it. And if being without it would be ultimately possible or not. Does this capture your experience at all? That the conflict, there's this conflict between an attraction for the holy and a disbelief in it. This is the air that we breathe in our times Friends, so what I'm saying is that we live in this closed stadium, and yet we're still haunted by the reality that there's something beyond um, what we see. Or as Julian Barnes, Julian Barnes is a, an English author, um, atheist, never went to church, um, lived a fully secular life. He, he puts it this way in one of, his, one of his books. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Now, what if we could do something? What if we could behave in a certain way, um, do something that pointed people to the reality that there's something beyond the stadium? What if there's a way of being in the world that if we patterned our life after after it would reveal to our neighbors and to ourselves that there's actually something beyond the here and now, something greater than, something greater than this life? What if one day the people in this closed stadium found an artifact Something that wasn't that wasn't in the stadium, that something that didn't come from the stadium. Something that must have originated from outside of the stadium. Um, so our question for tonight is um, what if there is a God? And if there is life outside the stadium, um, what if there is life beyond? And if there is a God, what if he gave us an artifact? What if he gave us a pattern of way, a way of being together? A way of being in the world that enacts and displays the true reality of the world. So God gives an answer to this question in shadow form in Leviticus 8. Shadow form, I say that because it's a picture. Um, The picture we're going to be given here is actually a copy. It's it's one that's waiting for the reality to come. And we're going to see this through Leviticus 8, which talks about the priesthood. So this semester, if you've been with us, you know we're studying Leviticus together and um, we're trying to make sense of this book together and we're finding that as we look at the signs, the things that are present in Leviticus, they point us to the things signified, to this truer reality. Um, when we got the, when we get the copy in the Old Testament, we get a better sense of the truer reality in the New Testament. So I'm going to read for us from Leviticus 8 and Exodus 19. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there. Sorry we don't have handouts tonight we, um, and the predictor's... We just have technology failures, but hey, we've got a good old paper Bible, so we're going to use this. Um, So I'm going to read Leviticus 8, 1 through 9, and 22 through 30 to start off. This is God's word for us tonight. He gives it to us because he loves us. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put a coat on him and tied the sash around his waist. He clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied it skillfully, Tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with a band. And he placed the breast piece on him and in the breast he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban, in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then we start at verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses took some of the blood of the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh, and out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil, and one wafer, and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and on his garments, and also on his sons and on his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Um, And one more passage tonight I'm going to read from Exodus 19, 5-7, which says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, to speak to the people. Now, if therefore you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God, we thank you for your word and its strangeness to us. It comes to us from a foreign place. Um, Lord, we pray you would help us to make sense of it and to see Jesus through it tonight. We pray in his name for his glory. Amen. Okay, so um, odd passage today as every week as we're reading Leviticus. And so what we see here in Leviticus 8 is that God calls out a sacred people, um, this group of people whose very lives mirror the great realities that God himself has established. And so the priesthood, what the priesthood is is it's a model of what God has done, um, and we see in the future, we'll see that what He has done in Jesus Christ, our High Priest, what he is doing, what he is doing now in the church, um, and what he's doing in Aaron's sons, and what he will do this is his last passage we read, in his kingdom and the kingdom of the priesthood is Israel. And because of this, we understand the priesthood. We understand that our own patterns, what our own patterns of life are supposed to look like. So tonight we're going to look at these three types of priests that we read about, um, being held by Les Newsom tonight in his work on this. And as we look at these three types of priests, um, we're going to see the function of the priest, the failure of the priest, and then the fulfillment of the priest, and then talk about a little application for us. So first, the high priest. Um, the high priest was the spiritual head of Israel. He was the go-between between you and God. So how did the tabernacle work? Um, how did the high priest function in the tabernacle? Well, only the high priest was able to enter the presence of God before the Ark of the Covenant. If you're unfamiliar, I actually had a slide with a picture of the tabernacle, so I'm going to have to explain it. So the, um, the tabernacle was this, something that God designed, and it was an enclosed area that when, when someone walked in, the first thing that you saw was uh, this altar where the, where the animals were sacrificed. And then beyond that, there was a basin where you would be cleaned. And then inside of that, there was actually a tabernacle, which is a tent. And inside the tent was the holy place where only the priests could go. But then in the inside of that was the holy of holies, which was this place that only the high priest could go. And he could only go once a year, and he would go there to atone for the sins of the people. We're going to get to this when we get um, to the Day of Atonement in a few weeks. And what we saw in verses 5 through 9 that I read was that this high priest was covered in expensive clothing. Aaron was given this golden ephod. We don't know what an ephod is. Something that's gold. Um, This sash, a breastplate, the urm and thumen, um, and a turban. And this outfit that he wore was actually symbolic of the tabernacle. So the the high priest was a living temple of sorts. Um, Vern Poithers, who's a theologian, says this. He says that the high priest himself is in fact a type of vertical replica of the temple. So his, gar- his garments actually correspond to the curtains of the temple. His headband with the inscription, Holy to the Lord, corresponds to the most holy place, the representation of heaven. His hands manipulate the blood that mediates between heaven and earth. His feet remain planted on earth. His ears, his hands, and his feet are all consecrated with blood, corresponding to the consecration of the parts of the tabernacle. Thus, he's not only a human being sinful like us, but a human being clothed with the majesty of heaven. So the point of this is that he would represent the people to God and would actually, as he did so, wear something that, that showed what the, the, the pattern, what the structure of heaven itself looked like. So he functioned between the people and God just as much like a lawyer did as he did like a religious person would. So do we need priests today? our question. Um, for many of us, priests sound really weird. This is a weird idea for us. We might not think that we need them, um, our, but our daily and weekly struggles reveal that we actually need priests to be human. So what do I mean by this, that we need priests to be human? Well, most of us most of us walk around projecting an image of what we hope people will see in us. Um, we craft this persona that we want for ourselves, right? Um, think about this. How do you answer this question for yourself? Um, when you ask, am I a good person or a bad person? Do I have character or do I not? Right, these are the sort of things that we care about. And if we take this one step further, um, we usually have two answers to those questions. Right? We have the answer that we give to the world um, and the answer that we whisper or we yell to ourselves. Do you know this experience? Well, of course you do. Right? You live it every day. Every day you fail to meet the expectations that you set for yourself. Whether it be through your moral failure, doing something that you wish you hadn't. Or through your omissions, not doing the things that you ought to have done. Or simply through your limitations, not getting done the things that you hoped you would. Right? No matter how hard we try, we can't live our ideal lives. You, you see your life is filled with the possibility of who you can become. And yet, you just can't quite get there. All right? your, your ideal self is always beyond your reach. Now, you may pep talk yourself. Telling yourself things like, I am worthy, I am enough. But what you need, what you actually need is a word from outside of yourself. A word that will evaluate you and tell you who you are. But you're terrified of that word and you probably don't believe it exists. We live in a culture that does not buy this. And we don't buy it most days either. And yet, we continue to carry around these deep feelings of shame and guilt. And if we are in this stadium with the roof that doesn't open... Where do those feelings of shame and guilt come from? Um, Franz Kafka, who was a great writer of the earliest 20th century, wrote a novel called The Trial. Um, and in this story, it begins with this man named Joseph K. And he wakes up in the morning and he is arrested and taken into custody. And no one will tell him what he did wrong. He keeps asking everyone, what am I arrested for? What did I do? What am I being accused of? And no one will tell him. And so the... In the novel, he goes from one prison cell to another, from one hearing to another, and no one ever explains to him why he's been arrested. And this leads Joseph K. to question his entire existence. He starts thinking, maybe it was for that thing, or have I been arrested for this thing? I did that, but that doesn't seem to be bad enough. But maybe this is what happened. And at the end of the novel, he never finds out what he did. And at the end, he is stabbed to death by the prison, go- prison warden. Okay, so horribly depressing book. Um, But what Kafka got 90 years ago and is still true today is that we live in a world that doesn't believe in judgment, right? We live in a world that doesn't believe in sin, and yet we still feel that there is something wrong with us. Even though a lot of us don't believe in moral absolutes, we still feel that if we were to be examined, right, if someone were to know those deep recesses of our hearts, we would be rejected. Right? We're just like Joseph K. We feel that we've got to hide our true self or at least control what people know about us because secretly we feel that we're not acceptable. And that we have to prove we're worthy. Right? We have to prove that we're lovable. We have to prove that we're valuable. This is our need for a priest. Your need for a priest is embedded in your own anxiety. So here in Leviticus, God gives priests to his people. And Aaron, who is the brother of Moses, is ordained as the high priest. But the problem is that Aaron is sinful and he's prone to mess things up. We learn in Exodus that while Moses is receiving the very words from God to give to his people, um, this is just months before Leviticus takes place, Aaron is down with the people, having given up on God, leading God's people in an orgy, a literal orgy around a golden calf that they've constructed and said, you know what? Yahweh didn't rescue us from Israel or from Egypt. This golden calf rescued us from Egypt, so we should worship it instead. Right? Aaron is a mess. And we see that in Leviticus 8, even he needs to be consecrated and sanctified before he can serve as high priest. All these sacrifices he has to perform, say one thing, and it says it clearly. That there must be a better high priest. There must be, there must be a perfect high priest. And in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it tells us that this is what God has given us in Jesus. I want to read to you from Hebrews 4 and 5. This is what we're told. We're told that since since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of his people. And no one takes this honor from himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by God. What this is saying is that Jesus it says that Jesus is able to sympathize with your weakness because he was tempted as we are and is yet without sin. And as the high priest, he calls us, he calls you to draw near to him, that you would draw near to his throne of grace where he's waiting to give mercy and grace to you as you're in need. This is the priest that you need. God has provided this for you in Christ. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Now, there are lots of reasons that we don't come to him, right? You might be thinking to yourself, well, I've done too much. I'm too soiled to come to God. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm not enough. So I'm going to try harder to be enough before I come to God. Or maybe you feel guilty. Maybe you think that you need to deal with your guilt before you come to God. But you can't. God is the one who deals with guilt. That's the whole point of this. Think about the stadium again. The reason why we try to deal with our guilt and shame on our own rather than bringing it to God, it's because we've grown up in the stadium. It's because we think, we all think that the answers to the problems in our lives are going to be found here Right? I have to deal with the problems of my own life. I've got to figure out how to deal with my own guilt. I've got to figure out how to deal with my own shame on my own. But Jesus is saying to you, I have dealt with it on the cross definitively. Bring your guilt and shame to me, and I will wash it away. Confess your sin to me, and I will forgive you and wash you clean. Let me ask you this question. You don't have to respond to that. Um, what do you do with your guilt and shame? What do you do with your guilt and shame? Do you deal with it on your own? Do you try to deal with it on your own? Or do you bring it to Jesus, the only one who can actually do anything about it? There is no forgiveness of guilt or healing of shame in this world. You need a high priest, and the high priest is Jesus. So the next level of priests that we're given in this passage are the Levitical priests. And these were Aaron's sons, and they filled responsibilities in and around the temple. And their main responsibility was to represent individual worshipers before God. And as we read, they have this huge ordination um, procedure, days of consecration, cleansing ritual preparation, right? They've got blood smeared on their ears and their hands and their feet. Alright, Why is that in there? Um, well, the ears, because their ears hear God's words and their hands, so they'd be consecrated to do God's work and their feet to be consecrated to walk in God's righteousness, So they would serve the people of God by teaching them God's word, by guiding them in wisdom, by interceding for them in prayer, and leading them in holy worship. But we find out quickly in chapter 9 that Aaron's sons were also a mess. The Old Testament is full of stories of the epic failure of the priests. And once again, the role of priests seems irrelevant to us and is waiting for fulfillment. Now in the New Testament... Um, We're actually given a couple of pictures where the Apostle Paul uses the language of priests to tell us about the church. And Paul uses the language of Old Testament priests as the model for the idea that there are certain individuals who are called and ordained to serve the people of God. We call these pastors. So what are they called to do? Exactly what the sons of Aaron were called to do. To teach God's word, to guide in wisdom, to intercede in prayer, and to lead in holy worship. Now, we are at such a low ebb in our day when it comes to respect for our clergy that it almost sounds quaint to say that the New Testament teaches that we need men trained in the understanding of God's word to help us understand better what God has called us to do and be. Right? But it's true. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this. It says, Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. So to summarize this, the New Testament envisions your life as being lived out with the guidance and assistance assistance of God's chosen infallible pastors, instructing you as you fulfill your purpose. So the third category of priests we get to are the kingdom of priests. So you might be asking, what then is my purpose in this? And this is what the third category of priests shows us. And this is why we read the passage from Leviticus. Leviticus. One could read through the book of Leviticus and come to the conclusion that Israel's only purpose in the world was to gather around and worship at the tabernacle. But their worship of the true God in all of life was designed to be a witness to the nations of the world. Israel was designed to be an entire nation of priests. I mean, look at the genius of this ordered society. Right? The center of the, of the camp was the temple, right? the physical location of God on earth. And immediately surrounding that was the sanctuary where only the priests could go. And then the rest of Israel encamped around in this encampment around the tabernacle. And they were set apart as well because only faithful Jews could stay there. And then finally, as the other nations of the world looked on on this worshiping people, They were called to repent and worship the true God and join Israel. The people of Israel represented God to the unbelieving, watching world. They were priests. So this means that a Christian's life pattern is first to be centered on the one who tells me who I actually am. Jesus tells you who you are. He tells you that you're made in the image of God. He tells you that you were redeemed from sin and death by his blood shed for you on the cross. Jesus speaks the truest word to you, tells you that you are his, that he is worthy, he is enough, and that your life belongs to him. Christ is your life. He is enough. Second, this centers on the vision that we get from our participation in the institution, yes, the institution of the church, of the local church, with its, its worship, regular worship and its pastors to regularly cast vision um, for me and for you about what God's world should look like. And third, it centers on my taking responsibility for my life to be a blessing to the nations. Finding ways in which my work, my family, my habits, everything that God has given me is useful to God and his plan to usher the world into the love of the triune God. So some application of this. Um, Often y'all will ask me, how do I get more involved in RUF? And I tell you, bring a friend. Um, invite a friend to come consider the truth claims of Christianity in a non-threatening atmosphere. Now, all of this might sound foolishly optimistic to you, right? Um, maybe you're jaded or hurt by how far, far short God's representatives have fallen and have failed you. Um, our failure of being that vision of God's people and how far, you, how far you fall short in representing God to those around you. right? Some of you are tempted to write me off tonight, um, and you wouldn't even know where to start. So here's where you start. Um, look at the high priest. Look at him. Look at this, this man who is covered with gold and jewels and whose, whose um, clothing is designed to, to capture us in its beauty. Um, to say that Jesus is your high priest is to say that when the Father looks at you, he sees absolute beauty. He sees value beyond measure. I want to close with an illustration. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a pastor in England in the 20th century, after having explained the way of Christ to someone, he would say this. He would say, "Are are you ready to respond that you're a Christian now? And they would respond, well, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready yet. He says, I knew then that I had been wasting my breath. Why? Because they're still thinking in terms of themselves. The essence of the Christian faith is to say that he is good and I am in him. This is what it means for Jesus to be your high priest. So look at Jesus your high priest. And as we do this together, receiving his grace and forgiveness, extending this grace and forgiveness to one another, and displaying his love to the world, as we learn to live as a kingdom of priests together, the world outside will not only begin to wonder, or the world will not only begin to wonder what is outside of the stadium, but will be ushered into the very life of God. Let's pray.